Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to tonight's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Reed Albergati, and I'm a technology reporter with The Washington Post. I'm pleased to be the moderator for tonight's program on a critical topic, the historical importance of the transformation brought on by artificial intelligence and virtual environments. As we have seen so acutely over the past three months with the COVID-19 pandemic and with social media with the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and its aftermath, technology and online environments guide every aspect of our lives. Tonight, I'm pleased to be joined by two Silicon Valley pioneers to discuss these issues further, William David Au and Michael Malone. Their new book, The Autonomous Revolution, Reclaiming the Future We've Sold to Machines, is out now and delves deeply into the revolution we are living through regarding AI and virtual environments. The book can be purchased everywhere, including bn.com. A little bit about tonight's speakers. Bill David Au is the co-founder of the venture capital firm Moore David Au. Earlier in his career, he worked at Intel and is credited with being one of the pioneers in high-tech marketing. Michael Malone covered technology for the San Jose Mercury News in the 1980s and remains one of the world's best-known technology business journalists. Together, David Allen Malone co-wrote the influential book, The Virtual Corporation. And today, they're here to discuss their latest book. And I must say, it's a great read. Now, before jumping in, just some quick housekeeping notes. Um, Questions can be submitted for the guests via the YouTube chat feature. So please post your questions there during the program and they'll be forwarded to me, and then I'll get to as many of them as possible. Okay, let's jump in. Now, Bill, I want to start with you. You helped make Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. But in recent years, you've written a lot about how the technology industry has taken a wrong turn, and in many ways is hurting our world, our economy, our society more than it's helping. And what made you want to write this book, and why now? Well, uh, when I was with Intel, what we were doing was, uh, I, I've come to realize child's play. Uh, you know, what we were doing was tinkering with things. We were making stoplights work better. Uh, we made cash registers, so they added up. And and then along came the PC, and we automated spreadsheets. And when you automated a spreadsheet, it went inside a business, and you replaced something that people were doing with pencil and paper or uh, a, uh, something like that, but the business stayed the same. And what I suddenly came to realize is that what was different about this technology was that it was transforming the form of our institutions. So that if you look at it, uh, what we did is we automated existing form. This is causing the form of the institution to change. So a bank becomes an application on a smartphone. And then I suddenly realized this had happened twice before in the history of humanity, once the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution. And what I, everybody was saying was, well, this is just another technology change, only it's faster. And it isn't that. It's, it's a transformation of society. Now, you call that change in your book, excuse me, you call that change in your book a social phase change. And as you said, it's this rare 
and, and monumental thing. But can you go into a little bit of why do you call that a phase change? And, and how is this one really uh, different than those other couple of phase changes that you document in, in history? Well, well, phase change is a, an actual scientific term, and it refers to a molecule, the same molecule having a different physical form. So a storm cloud turns into a snowflake. And when water goes through a critical temperature, 32 degrees, it changes form. It goes from being a liquid to a solid. It obeys different rules, fluid flow for water. <clears throat> we use different tools on water, pumps and pipes. And our intuition about water tells us nothing about ice. And on top of that, and it comes as a warning with the analogy, uh, you know, ice breaks pipes and ice sinks ships like the Titanic. So we, we've got to, if we don't deal with these phase changes, it causes problems. And what I came to realize was that what was going on in society was a similar thing. Our institutions were changing form, obeying different rules. We were using different tools and our intuition was failing us. That's great. And, and um, you know, I throw this out to, to Mike, but um, let's talk about the, the moment that we're in right now. I mean, as I mentioned uh, in, the, in the intro, you know, we have coronavirus. We now have protests against police violence and racism. And, and all of this together is the, doing a lot, of, a lot of things. So one is it's kind of accelerating uh, the adoption of these technologies. I mean, we're here on, on Zoom, using Zoom right now to, to post this very uh, discussion. Um, but it's also kind of just bringing to the fore some of these issues with the technology that you get to in your book. Um, for instance, IBM yesterday uh, announced that it's going to pull out of the facial recognition business completely um, because the algorithms that, uh, that, that they use are actually discriminating against uh, people of color. So there's all this turmoil. And I just want to ask you guys, what, what effect do you think this turbulence is going to have on this technological future that you that you outline this is the, the the type of issue that phase change uh brings about uh, it, you, you know in, in other words the things and i'm gonna switch the subject a little bit on you but it's like privacy um it, you know privacy we used to have a door that we locked and now it, 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 privacy has a totally different meaning. And you, you have these new tools and they get used in, in uh, ways that we could have never anticipated it. I think everybody was surprised at what happened with Facebook. I mean, Facebook was supposed to bring us together and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and all I think of the technologists believed that Facebook was going to bring us together. And, you know, it was interesting to me because at the very time they were saying that, um, you could be reading sociology and have reached the, the entirely different conclusion. <laughs> and and uh, so that I, it, one of the challenges I think that we have in Silicon Valley is that we're now at the point where we've got to 
be very conscious of the psychological and sociological aspects of everything we're doing. That was never the case in the past. Right. And, I, and nice to have you back, Mike. Um, yes, you. you know, one of the, and one of the things you both say in the, in the book is that we need to change the way that we're looking at these things. I mean, we're, we're looking at them all wrong. And, you know, so how are, how are we looking at this, at this wrong, Mike? Can you, can you? Well, phase changes, societal phase changes are points of inflection. As Bill said, you can't predict what it looks like on the other side. If you've only lived in a world of liquid water, you live on the equator and you've never seen ice, you have no idea what ice looks like. You wouldn't even know it was water. You don't know how it's going to behave. It has all sorts of different physical traits. Um, you wouldn't know that ice floated. So when we go into one of these phase changes, we go into an alternative reality that on the other side, everything has changed. All the rules have changed. Things may look a lot, a lot alike, you know, buildings and everything else, but there's been a substitutional equivalence that's taken place. And what's replaced what we knew is fundamentally different. So if you were a, a herdsman, out in the Levant, and you came across Jericho for the first time, you might not even recognize that it was a human structure called a city. You wouldn't understand how the society was organized. You wouldn't understand anything. And it may be possible that you could never really cross over, you know, the Jordan into this new world. And we seem to be in one of these right now. We had another one in the 1700s. If you were out there working on the farm and all of a sudden the factories started arising and you went to work in the city, a completely new reality. And our senses, and Bill talks about this a lot, is that we have evolved. This is such a profound change going on. We've evolved for the physical world where time has a certain speed, there's a certain scope. Nature is not planned for us. It's not organized for us. We adapt to the world. The virtual world is fundamentally different. It was created by companies and is designed to focus on us, manipulate us, hopefully in positive ways, but it's also managing us like a casino. And we're biologically not even prepared for this new cyber world that we spend now half of our time in. So it's, this is a shocker. I mean, history literally changes. We have almost no record of the world before the agricultural age because writing wasn't invented. We have kind of a hint with Gilgamesh and the Egyptian Book of the Dead and a few things. Look at the Industrial Revolution. Literature before that fundamentally changes. Jane Austen's writings are a major change from what was written, you know, passion plays in the Middle, middle Ages. We think that we're just going through a transition to the next industrial revolution, the fourth one or whatever they want to call it. But Bill and my argument is this is much more profound and sweeping. Well, you know, and you document very well that some of these changes are already starting to look sort of dystopian, um, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? And you, you, you kind of say there's two futures that we could have, the dystopian one and the utopian one. And um, it's <laughs> let's, let's, look at the, let's look at the balance. I mean, let's, let's take the Industrial Revolution. OK, people left the farm, went to work for factories. We ended up with a Dickensian 
world in the cities of people laboring in the mills and child labor and, you know, the dark satanic mills and all of that. But on the other hand, life expectancy went up, uh, literacy went up. Uh, we invented new forms of health like hospitals and medical care, all of the technology rising out of labs that emerged during the Industrial Revolution. So we get a little bit of both and how, how the, the scales are going to end up is still not determined, still in our hands. But it's more than just predicting the future, which I think both of you are actually pretty good at just based on your on your track record. But it's not it's not just predicting it, right? It's it's trying to understand how we should the changes we should be making as a society right now to adapt to it. And you know what what can we do? I mean, we have all these new, you know, we have artificial intelligence and algorithms sort of deciding, uh, in a way, our place in in society, whether or not we get the health coverage we want or the car insurance at the price we want it. Um, it's already starting to happen, as you say in the book. And, you know, what, not all this stuff is great. So what do we do? What are some of the things that we, that we can do? Or what's a, what's a new way of thinking so that we can kind of better adapt? Well, I, I, I mean, I hate to wave my hands, but I'm going to. Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, it's hard to believe that probably 200 years ago, work was considered to be a curse, right? And, uh, and, uh, and uh, now we're saying not having work is a curse. And, uh, you know, uh, roughly 80 some odd years ago, George Maynard Keynes wrote, uh, this uh, future for our grandchildren, I forget the, the thing where he predicted that we might be working 15 hours a week and uh, would have chances to, to really enjoy life. We are going to end up with a different value system. And these are the things we're going to have to be prepared to accept. And, you know, it, 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 it's going to be a very different world. There are things that we do that are monetarily valuable that have no social value. There are things we do that are socially valuable that have no monetary value today, uh, like yeah, child raising kids. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if you're willing to, to pay me money so that I can get childcare so I can go out and get a job, maybe we've got to, think differently about these things and say, hey, raising children is so important. We're willing to pay people for doing things that are socially valuable that we never considered to be compensatable work. And uh, these are the kinds of issues we're going to have to deal with. And, um, it, it, and if I, I do not purport to know what the right answers are, but if we adopt the attitude is this is the way we did it before uh, and this is the, the solution we're going to apply to the future. It, I know that isn't going to work. So my argument would be, hey, there can be a conservative solution or a progressive solution, whatever you want. But you've got to look at these things and say new forms are going to require new tools and new rules. And, uh, and you can't just say, this is the way we did it before, 
this is what's going to work again. Yeah, you talk about uh, Silicon Valley companies becoming the new empires of of this new era, uh, instead of powerful, you know, nations. Um, we have these corporations that that dominate our our lives. And again, I mean, this current crisis just kind of highlights that that phenomenon. I mean, I've I've been writing about this for the Post, but uh, Google and Apple have gotten together, and they are essentially deciding how public health officials can use smartphone technology or cannot use smartphone technology for their, you know, efforts to, to do contact tracing and, and Google and Apple have put forth their own, their own solution. So they're taking on the role of, of these institutions that we've all, um, that we've all agreed upon, right. And, and voted on, uh, in society. And, um, you know, I just want to, is this power that they have a good thing and, and what do we need to, to do about that? That throw that one out to either of you. You'll note they all got richer during the pandemic while Main Street America got decimated. Uh, that may be where things are going. Uh, you know, one of the things that it, it, it occurred to me uh, in, in writing the book, but if you look at it, think about electricity. And when uh, we distributed electricity, we created utilities, and then uh, the application layer was the light bulb, and we had all of the, uh, you know, and we had lots of different light bulb suppliers or uh, lots of different furnace suppliers for the gas utilities. Uh, today, you know, what we think about is we, we think about the physical communication layer as being the utility, but you can't use that layer without the application layer or the platform that sits on top of that. And so what has happened is that, that Apple and Google and Facebook are in fact utilities now. And, and we, we, that were they're functioning as private companies. So in the past, uh, uh, we we had the electric companies and they were private companies, and then we turned them into utilities because it, it made sense to only have one phone company supply everybody. And uh, it, we're we're going to have to talk about issues like that when my. When my mother was growing up in Reading, Pennsylvania, there were three phone companies, and you, 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 you if, if, if your friend was on a different phone company, you couldn't talk to him. It made no sense, and so we created a utility so we could have one phone company, and uh, it, it, you know these are the kinds of issues we're going to have to talk about. So, Bill, do you agree with Elon that uh, they ought to bust up Amazon? I, I I have different feelings about Amazon than Elon does, but he's a very smart guy. <laughs> you know those util those phone companies, though they had compared to the empires that you write about now, they had a very narrow uh, effect on our lives, right? These companies are doing everything uh, for us. I mean, they're you know how does that how does how how does that create differences? Well, to me, you see, that is that is part of the big difference. Uh, you know, I hear that we've got antitrust laws and things like that. Well, 
you know, maybe, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with antitrust laws, but antitrust laws are a technique of the past. And, uh, you know, maybe we have to look at these things differently. I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 the reason for that is that also these are borderless institutions and, uh, and, uh, they, they aren't necessarily, you know, uh, Facebook or Google are operating in Germany. I mean, it's not like, uh, and, and, and so, uh, they're an American company. But with this this world reach, and uh, so you get into issues of how much, what I would say, world governance do you want to have? And uh, now you may object to me talking about world governance when it, you talk about commerce, but what about cybercrime and uh, and uh, things like that? Crime was essentially local in the past. I mean, you had to have a, you had to have a gun and an escape car. And, uh, today, uh, somebody steals $500 million, Citadel steals $500 million and they're located nowhere. And, uh, and, uh, so in a millisecond, what in a millisecond, <laughs> Now, you bring up an interesting question, though. I mean, even in Europe, where the antitrust laws are comparatively stronger, or at least regulators seem to have, you know, more uh, power or aggressiveness in going after these companies, there hasn't actually been, there have been some big fines, but there hasn't actually been a, a, any sort of change that's, that's, that's created change in behavior of, of these companies. So does, um does raise the question of how, how, what what governments are um, they beholden to, and and what leverage does society actually have over these companies? Well, it's a good question. We saw the NBA, uh, you know, curl up when uh, there was a problem with China because of the massive investment. We know Hollywood now will not make a movie that says anything negative about China because of the massive amounts of investments. I mean, I think it's it's all we're already seeing the effect and it's changing what we're allowed to see in many ways or think. You know, fundamentally, uh, I, I believe what I will call the business model of the Internet is, it, 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 it is wrong. And legislation could change that. You know, for example, uh, if you gave me ownership of all my personal data, uh, that would change things dramatically. Um, if, uh, we, kept, if, we kept getting back to that writing the book, that we have to own our own data. It just seems more and more apparent. And, and Bill's been a great advocate of that for years. But now I think everybody's beginning to understand that giving up our data for free for bread and circuses was a very bad contract. This is where this is where I might push back a little. The one area where I might push back on on this or prod this thesis a little bit because you know Facebook is fond of saying you know you own your own data, uh, so you know technically you do have a choice, right? I mean we can we can use these services or not use them. Um, so 
that sort of value exchange is already there. We've already all decided, you know, we're going to give up some of our, our personal data, our privacy in exchange for these services. But, you know, I think privacy advocates would say, well, are, do you really have a choice? And do you really know how much you're giving up and where it's right. going? Right. But if everyone needs to use Facebook and everyone needs to use, you know, whatever the platform du jour is, uh, do, is anyone really going to have the choice to not make that value exchange, to not sell their data? You, you, you see, that's partially baked into the algorithm. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, we reduced the cost of one-to-many communications to zero. It used to be that you told me that I had free speech, and it's written right there. I, I, you know, I, I can say anything I want, and this and that and the other thing. It turns out that that's been one of the biggest hoaxes fo- foisted on society forever. I could, I had all the free speech I wanted to, but nobody listened to me, and nobody could hear me. So if I wanted to talk to a lot of people, I had to go out through mass media, or I had to spend a lot of money. So free speech was expensive. And so now we reduced the cost of free speech to zero. And the thing that was limiting free speech was the free market, because people had to pay for it. You had to pay to get your message out. And when we reduced the cost of free speech to, to zero, we underpriced something that was extremely valuable, and we created what I would call a tool for antisocial behavior, a, a, a productivity tool for antisocial behavior. And so there's nothing wrong. It used to cost me money to send a letter. There's no reason why email has to be free. And uh, there's no reason why um, reaching thousands of people on the Internet has to be free. And if it cost a little bit to do that, we'd behave more responsibly. But because we're giving away something of great value for zero, we're encouraging tremendous amounts of irresponsible behavior. It's funny. We've also made, I mean, reduced the cost of free speech, but also made that irresponsible behavior very profitable for a small handful of people. Um, And to give you an idea just how much information you're giving up, there's a gentleman named Mike Steep, former Microsoft executive. He's now head of the Digital Cities Project at Stanford. Just as an experiment, he had the tools to do the tracing. He went out to downtown Palo Alto and bought a stick of gum at like a Walgreens, bought lunch, and got a tank of gas. And then he tracked where that data, that tra- those transactions went. And within a week, it had already gone out to about 50 different servers around the world. Within six months, it was at several thousand servers. So that stick of gum he bought was now known by thousands of major corporations and information controlling entities and everything else around the world. Now, imagine as we move into the Internet of Things, where your car is talking to the grid and the thermostat in your house and your refrigerator and everything else are all tracking you. They know where you are, and that's being shared with everybody, including people 
who want bad things for you or to take advantage of you. That's what we're heading into as we give up this free information that we think is, isn't that important, but it becomes vitally important at a certain, there's some threshold that we're about to cross where it becomes really dangerous. Well, since we're on the topic of free speech, I did want to ask you, Mike, about, and you get, you talk about the media in the, in the book, um, but at the same time is that, you know, free speech has, has been reduced in, in cost. You've also kind of diminish the the earning capacity of you know especially local news i wouldn't really say the national media um but local news in places like like the publication that you worked for um you know and and how do we is that is it too late to to get that back or is there are there some ways we can change our thinking on that as well well, remember the newspaper is largely a phenomenon of the Industrial Revolution. It managed to survive, transform somewhat by the di- by the digital era, uh, going into television and eventually getting on the web. But the monetary the monetization model of the web broke journalism because they started giving it away for free, and then when they tried to start charging for it again. Nobody wanted to pay it. Maybe a few, you know, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. That's about it. But for the most part, all traditional media, and I'm a fourth generation newspaper man, they're all dying. They're losing their audience. They're being replaced by citizen journalism. But there are no professional standards in that world. You don't know if you can trust that, re- that reporter with his own website or that blogger with her own opinions. You know, it's a cacophony right now. And my hope is it begins to sort itself out as we develop feedback functions and basically tools and techniques to determine what is real news and what is fake news. I mean, it's a tough time for a First Amendment absolutist like myself, where I think you should be able to say anything you want. But if 10 billion people are saying everything they want, now we got a mess. And that's the chaos we're in right now. Well, you know, and again, a current event here, um, you know, Donald Trump is now threatening to take away uh, the Section 230 protections from from technology companies, you know, through executive order. I don't know if that's possible legally, but he certainly has added fuel to that debate over, you know, and, and for audience members who don't know what Section 230 is, it's, you know, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, basically gives uh, gets tech companies out of any liability for what is published on their platform. That's a big difference, right, between what you did at the Mercury News, what I do. You know, I can't just say whatever I want. I'll, I'll be sued if I if I write irresponsible things about people. And, um, you know, is that maybe the momentum is there to get rid of that, but is that something we need to do? Well, but the problem is, you know, Quis custodia ipsos custodies. It goes back to Rome. Who guards the guardians? I mean, what we've seen is the tech companies trying to institute these boards and editorial censors and everything else, trying to keep the bad stuff out, let the good stuff in. The trouble is human beings have biases. Oftentimes they are unconscious of. And you can hardly say, looking at the history of who gets who gets locked out of Twitter at given times or, you know, sealed off and, and, you know, not allowed access on Facebook and elsewhere, that that has been 
an entirely unbiased process designed to maximize free speech. Oftentimes, the censors don't even know they're censorious. They don't know they're bringing their own political positions into the situation. I mean, if it's a choice between them picking out what we're allowed to read and just chaos, I'll take chaos. I really will. As much as I don't like it, uh, this is limiting our thinking. And when you limit our thinking and our speech, you limit our worldview. But do you think that these companies should be liable? Bill, maybe you can weigh in on that. Um. Well, we have strict and we have general liability. If a guy works on my house and he falls off a ladder, the contractor is going to get sued under strict liability. But dating back to the days of large farms, it's my house. I have to be, I'm going to be at the table in the negotiations because I'll have general liability. And I think there's some sort of new legal standard that they're going to have to abide by. We gave them carte blanche, and I don't think it handled well. They've limited speech rather than improved speech. Bill, you were gonna you were gonna say something. Well, I, I when all this uh, about Twitter uh, putting uh, the tags on Trump's email. Uh, started, I had a very perverse idea. And that was, suppose that what Twitter required was for somebody to certify that to the best of his knowledge, what he had written was factually correct. And that that I had to certify that when I published something. And um, then I thought, hey, uh, what I would be doing if I had to certify that was I was then exposing myself to some liability. Um, if, uh, you know, just like a newspaper is being exposed to liability. So that I was wondering if, 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 if Twitter couldn't have ducked the whole issue by saying, hey, uh, we're going to ask you to rate yourself and you can rate yourself as being, this is, you know, extremely reliable, you know, questionable or uh, strictly fiction. And you could pick one of those three options. And uh, I, I was wondering if that might work. It's an interesting idea. And I guess Twitter, in that scenario, they would have to know who those people are. They would have to somehow certify their real identity, right, at some point. Well, no, but the but this is the individual certifying that. And uh, this is a person who did the post. Yeah. Certifying that in his judgment, th- th- this was accurate uh, or, or highly accurate. Uh, but if I were, but if I just wanted to spread fake news on Twitter, I could just hide behind anonymity and certify that this is accurate. No one's ever going to hold me liable, right? Well, I, 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 I it, you've got the problem that we have to figure out who you are, right? But I, I, I on the other hand, um, there are people who we know who they are on Twitter, who mm-hmm. are uh, spreading falsehoods. And right. uh, 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 and um, I, I suspect they would be very cautious if they had to rate themselves to um, expose themselves to that kind of exposure. Now, Reed, one of the things that bothers me, I'm old enough now 
to see the 60s, and I'll note that many of the people in the audience here at the Commonwealth Club are my age. If you'll remember, a lot of the good things and changes that came out of the 1960s were first verbalized by people who were shouting things that were considered outrageous and antisocial and anarchistic and everything else. And now, here we are, 50 years later, we're saying we can't allow that kind of language. You know, we have to suppress antisocial commentary because it's not good for us. Well, think back, folks. It was quite good for us at the time. And who are we to know now? In retrospect, we understand. What about now? In the future, we're going to look back and say suppressing this kind of speech actually limited our options. Right. But right. But at least then you knew who they were. They, they weren't people who were in the 60s. They weren't anonymous, right? They were people standing out, showing their faces and saying, you know, this is what I believe. Whereas what you have now is, uh, you know, bots and armies of trolls who, you know, spread. So I want to talk a little bit about um, just to change gears a little bit. You you talk about this promise of, of technology to create abundance and energy efficiency, better health care. You know, I, I, thought, I read that and I thought, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me and maybe this is this is the focus of, of journalists and, and we're to blame for this, but it doesn't seem to me that those are the technologies that are really being prioritized today um, in, in the tech industry. I mean, Apple, for instance, spends more on R&D in a quarter than the entire annual budget for the National Science Foundation, which you know pushes that sort of fundamental research. And I was wondering if you think that we need to steer innovation in a new direction um, so that, you know, quote unquote, utopian uh, future is, is created as opposed to the dystopian ones, if that if that makes sense. Well, first of all, I, I take a little bit of issue with utopian and dystopian. I think what we see is this fundamental paradox that Bill and I keep banging into when we're writing this book, which is, on the one hand, the world becomes more efficient, health care will be better, you know, there'll be, there'll be almost no hunger in the world because we're going to live in an era of absolute abundance when we have robots and picking fruit and growing things and controlling water and all this kind of stuff. When it's done by machines, it becomes more efficient. So the chances are the world is going to become more prosperous and more healthy. But then there's, on the other hand, there's this existential challenge, which is what constitutes a, a good life? How do we live if we're not working, if we're not producing something with our lives, and we're just reduced, Bill and I came up with the term ZEVs, zero economic value human beings, that at some point, machines are taking over more and more jobs, and those people may never have a job again. So do we give them a guaranteed annual income? Perhaps. But if they're just sitting in their little studio apartment, which costs next and is subsidized by the government, watching a wall-sized TV for free and having food delivered, is that a good life. Can, can you invest enough value into that life? Yeah, you can fly a drone over Petra remotely on your wall-sized TV, but is that the same? And so, I mean, this is the challenge, that the paradox that we can counter writing this book. It's almost like the, uh, like the time machine, the people living up in the, uh, in the Grecian you know, temples and all that. They've got everything. And yet they have nothing. 
they're slaves. They're, uh, Bill talks about the, the, the danger of robots is not mechanical robots or digital robots. It's that we're being turned into robots little by little. And that's not the future I, you know, I want for my kids or my grandkids. I wanted I wanted to pronounce Zev uh, the Z E Vs as opposed to the Zevs because that's actually my son's name Zevs. <laughs> I thought, oh, <laughs> I hope this doesn't become a thing. Um, but you know, you 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 mentioned the word uh, efficiency there, and you know that was another I think interesting point in the book that um, you know economists have always said that worker efficiency is is a net positive, right? It's, it's always, it's always a good thing. Um, and that isn't always the case, right? I mean, this, this, uh, you kind of talk about that and I'm I'm wondering if you can kind of explain that for, to people, why, why economists might not have taken everything into account here when it comes to the efficiencies created by these technologies. Well, uh, what has always happened in the past, uh, from 1920 to 1970, um, whenever we increase productivity, gross national product basically grew faster than productivity grew. And when that happened, um, wages went up and you created more jobs. But it, it, you, we were playing around with kids' play for productivity. If you have massive increases in productivity, you tend to have very, very low prices and markets shrink in size. That's what's happened to publications and things like that, where, you know, one source of news satisfies everybody so that the price of news drops down and things like that happens. And so the solutions of the past just aren't necessarily going to apply in the future. And uh, this is where the challenges arise because the way we distributed wealth for the past, I don't know, I'm going to say 400, 500 years, was we used your job as a way of distributing wealth to you. And now uh, that technique is 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 going away. And so we're going to have to figure out new ways to handle things like that. But in the past, when we've gone through these transitions, We've always been in times of scarcity. And now the problem is that we're that these problems are being created by abundance. I mean, a, a few people can produce all we need. And so uh, we are uh, in this utopian world where uh, there, there isn't a need for us to break our backs working anymore. And, you know, and we, we certainly ought to be able to figure out a way to... Uh, harvest utopia from abundance uh, rather than uh, dystopia from it. Well, I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, go to some, some audience questions here. And I, I do encourage if you're watching on, on YouTube to, to post some questions. Um, so this one is uh, for both of you. Uh, computer science has an introductory phrase, garbage in, garbage out. How is AI software trained to deal with this constant data reality? I, I, I've never thought of AI dealing with garbage in, garbage out so much as 
I've worried about the false conclusions, or let me put it this way, the, 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 the conclusions AI reaches that, that lead to uh, 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 just uh, unacceptable results. And, and I, I guess if I think about the fact that, um, that AI is, there's a way to look at my employment record and for AI to decide that I'm unemployable uh, based on all these in reports and this and that and the other thing. And I've always assumed that that wasn't so much a problem with the input data as it was with a problem of the interpretation of the data. So I've been blaming AI uh, for misinterpreting the data more than I've been blaming the garbage that it reads. Mm-hmm. Mike, do you, have a, do you have a take on that? Yeah, one of the interesting things that's occurred because of the rise of big data and AI is that we've always lived in a world of statistics where we gather up data, a, you know, a sample, and then we extrapolate. And that's usually where the garbage outcome comes in is where we extrapolate from a limited amount of bad data and we get bad conclusions. One of the interesting things that's happening is we can now sample everything. You know, there's going to be 100 billion sensors out there in the water, in the oceans, in the air, and trees. We can now map every single tree in the Amazon. So the accuracy of the garbage out is it's getting better. There's less garbage coming out. The, the, the trouble is the conclusions it draws don't include what it means to be a human being. And Bill came up with a great phrase, algorithmic prisons. And this is a terrifying thing that we isn't discussed enough, which is our lives are now being circumscribed by AI. They take our data and they decide what we're able to do and what we're able to experience. It's most visible in China where you get these social credits and you jaywalk three times. You can't go to that concert next month. But our lives are, even in the United States, it's beginning to happen. You don't get offered that deal over here. You don't get to buy that level of insurance. All because AI has figured out that you are not worthy of buying that. You are not a safe risk. And the scary part is you don't even know that there are boundaries on your life. You think you have free choice, but those choices are getting smaller, smaller, and smaller. That's that's the garbage out that terrifies me. Another um, another question here is: What do you think will be the biggest short and long term changes brought on by the AI revolution? Or I guess it's the AI revolution, maybe. <laughs> well, if, for my part, I think it's it, it's each one of these major changes, these um, phase changes, produces a different sense of what it means to be a human being, and I think. Living with intelligent machines, living in this new autonomous world will change our sense of who we are. We already know it's, going to, it's already changing our sense of time and space. I mean, we have a whole new dimension in our universe called cyberspace, but it's going to change our sense of fundamentally of who we are. Yeah, I, I, I think that at least uh, it, it, you know, so many of us defined ourselves by the job we had or by the profession we had. And I, I think that 
the, the difference in work and the difference in the way we deal with that and the difference in the lifestyles that will come from that are, are, are going to be the, the uh, really important things. I mean, my guess is, is that the 15-hour work week might be a reality. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, so uh, what do people do when they have uh, five days off a week? And, uh, and uh, you know, we're learning that we uh, have trouble dealing with that right now. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and I, I'll, I'll take more reader questions as they come in, but at, right now it's uh, there's not a new one there. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to ask you, I mean, on, on that topic, um, you know, there, there is this, these technology companies today are, are taking advantage of this abundant labor, right. Of, of cheap labor, people, you know, Uber, Amazon, they've really, they've really kind of like seen this, this, uh, this labor source and, you know, and, and exploited it. Right. And, and I think that's another, I mean, it's like people on the one hand, yes, they do have more time, but on the other hand, they're kind of desperate for, for work. So how do you kind of square those two things? Well, I, I, I you know, one thing you could do is, is uh, give uh, earned income incentives. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I, 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 there's, there's no reason why if uh, you're earning less than $15 an hour, the, the, the government couldn't say for somebody who's earning, you know, working really hard that, uh, that they couldn't supplement that income. Uh, I, I, I mean, it, it, it and, it, it, you know, this gets back to social questions as to whether you believe that that is going to destroy the fabric of, of society but uh, we have a problem with income inequality. And uh, the question is, who's, if you want to blame somebody, um, maybe you can blame somebody who's poor for not having the skills, but, uh, or you can blame the rich for grabbing all the money. But the problem is that the social unrest we've just experienced says that life is going to be not very good for all of us unless we figure out how to solve that problem. And so we're going to have to address that problem. And uh, uh, it, we're going to have to find techniques for doing it. And so maybe uh, some kind of earned income incentive is a way of doing that. And an Uber driver, if he was getting an earned income incentive, that wouldn't be necessarily a bad job. There's also the notion that what we consider non-tangible income, you know, uh, raising children, you know, coaching uh, a, uh, a girl's soccer team, uh, doing community service down at the soup kitchen. Those are, those are voluntary activities that are unpaid. And we say, well, you, you get the personal satisfaction of doing good work. But in theory, those jobs could be paid too. You know, there's a lot of things we do that theoretically could be monetized in such a way that this becomes people's careers, uh, people that can't find work because they've been displaced by AI. 
Uh, we don't have a model for that yet, but my sense is it's going to happen. So, you know, uh, back to some of your solutions, I, I thought some of your solutions were so radical and, and fascinating. I want to talk about a little more. I mean, for instance, um, you talk about the possibly taxing companies based on the number of users they have. Um, can you explain that? What's the reasoning behind, behind that one? Well, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, this, this got back to the fact that we had underpriced things. And um, it, it, so uh, I'm, I'm uh, not a fan of, let's say, conspiracy theory. And um, it, it, so I, 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 I thought, but there are people who engage in conspiracy theory as a business. Yeah. Um, and they, they engage in conspiracy theory, not necessarily because they believe in conspiracy, the conspiracies, but because they get lots of clicks can, can sell the advertising. So I, I was sitting there thinking, hey, um, uh, you know, if you've got all these connections and if if people are so valuable that they want to connect to you, um, maybe uh, we should make connecting to you a little bit expensive. And then you could say, hey, uh, all right, I've got lots of people connecting with me and I, I'm going to make them pay to connect with me. And you turn it into a different kind of business. And uh, uh, I, I so the, the thinking behind that was that, uh, if, if if I had thousands of people who wanted to uh, read what I had written um, and they were clicking on my blog, uh, I could tax you a little bit for that and you could charge for reading your blog and it would be a, a real business. There, there's, it's, it's all based on the, the fundamental notion Bill and I both have that the Internet got created with a busted financial model right out of the gate. And the most pernicious thing that happened was the rise of freeware because it wasn't freeware. And that when you start doing freeware and you're manipulating teenage kids using techniques learned from casinos to make them addicted to the experience, there's a social cost involved, you know, that, is, that they are at the moment immune from. They don't have to pay that social cost. That somehow monetizing the internet in some rational way where you have to pay more taxes if you've got a bigger footprint and you're having more social impact. In other words, the number of users you have, the number of clicks you get. It, you know, it, it seems anathema to us, the idea of, of charging for the internet. It's supposed to always be free until the end of time. But if we rationalize the monetization of it, it structures the system in a way that ultimately becomes much more fair. I mean, it could be a tenth of a cent or a hundredth of a cent per, per click, but somehow to bring a financial model to the Internet that's realistic and rational and serves the larger social good just seems like a necessity. You know, we could have a micropayment system on the Internet so that when I read a blog, I, I could pay you a nickel. And uh, and I, I suspect that if you looked at a newspaper, I'm paying a nickel, a dime, or something per story I read. And uh, 
there, there's a reason why we don't have that system, because if we had that system, uh, the, the Google business model and the Facebook business model wouldn't work uh, nearly as well. Um, and, and, and then I thought, if you think of the way the system works, you know, I have capital equipment. I've got my computer and my iPhone and my iPad and my smart car, and I drive around, and I'm using my capital equipment to produce the information that you sell to somebody else. I'm a manufacturer of that, and, it, 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 you know, it, it, you, you take it from me, and you sell advertising, and you keep all the money. And uh, uh, they're, they're, uh, so that you could conceive of lots of different business models. And I, I think part of the problem that we're dealing with is that we came up with a business model that distorted everybody's incentives. Well, these business models are very lucrative. And the, uh, the companies that we're talking about here have, have a lot of lobbyists and they give a lot of money to the right, you know, people. And which kind of brings me to this question I wanted to kind of ask you is what, is this going to take, uh, you know, really great leadership to, to get this stuff done? And, you know, is there some technology that could invent that, you know, really good leadership? <laughs> well, either great leaders or, you know, a lot of civic strife, one of the two. But uh, this, it's, it, the system is so distorted now. I mean, we, we have allowed basically free reign to a handful of companies to grow faster and become more valuable than any enterprises in the history of the world. And we gave them carte blanche on this. And it's time to start reining them back in because they're not going to stop. They've already shown they're not going to stop. And their influence in distorting everyday life now is becoming, you know, almost unbearable. We know what's going on, but we can't do anything anymore. So it's going to take great leadership or, you know, people on the streets again. And what do you think is going to come first? I mean, is it? Usually the second comes first and then a, a leader arises for the movement. Yeah. Even privacy legislation, it seems like, you know, it's kind of happening on the state level uh, more than the federal level because. Yeah, once it. It has to go through K Street to make it into the Capitol. And uh, the lobbyists uh, water it down on the way in. Yeah. Right. There's, gonna have to, uh, there's probably going to have to be an enormous scandal that a whole bunch of personal information got given to the wrong person and people died. Or they- well, didn't we, already, didn't we already have that with, uh, with Cambridge Analytica? I mean... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did. But it, it, we... We all didn't feel it personally in our lives, feeling the, the enormous danger of the potential of all of this. One, something's going to happen. You know, you can feel it on the horizon. Something big's going to happen that's going to really be damaging. It's going to people are going to rise up to try to stop these large corporations. And if they're intelligent. These are smart. I mean, Bill and I have known all of them. These are smart, smart guys, men and women. They better start looking ahead and, and maybe do some things in preparation to keep it keep it from happening. They're going to have to make some changes in the way they deal with this. 
So I'm going to ask one last question from the audience here. But put your uh, your predictor hats on here. What do you think is coming next in terms of of AI? Well, I I I, I think these autonomous systems and general intelligence uh, type things. I mean, these systems are are going to get very smart, and uh, it, it's going to be different than human intelligence. But if it's applied to a narrow application area, they can get very, very smart and very, very capable. And uh, um, they will have very specific domain expertise and they will be very good at the things they do. Yeah, I've been tracking the semiconductor industry because it's always upstream from everything else that happens. And people aren't noticing that there have been some technological breakthroughs in quantum computing and atomic level silicon gates. And we're moving to the point where we're gonna be able to hold in our hands all the computing power that exists in the world right now. And when you harness that to AI, you're not gonna get, I don't believe we're ever gonna find consciousness in our machines, but we're gonna have incredible intellectual power in these machines, more than we can imagine. They'll be moving at speeds They'll be doing a lifetime in a second, human lifetime. And when that arrives, it's, I can't even imagine the applications that are going to emerge, but they're going to be utterly transformative. That our, our children are going to look back on us like we look back on that herdsman in the Levant, you know, in 4000 BC. And uh, big changes are coming really fast. And they'll hit when we, we know they're coming, but we keep discounting it. But when they hit, we're going to go, wait a minute, what happened? How'd that hit us so quickly? And it will happen soon. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program. I want to thank Bill Davidow and Michael Malone for joining tonight's very interesting Commonwealth Club program. And again, I encourage you to purchase their new book, The Autonomous Revolution, available everywhere. I'll show you a picture, uh, including bn.com. And I'm Reed Albergati, and tonight's uh, virtual Commonwealth Club has been adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.